KFBS. Radio 2. Radio 2. with Christopher Lee. Hello there, Adam Gilchrist there and the BFBS news team. Yes, glad you could come. You are very welcome to this, sit-ret, uh, this week's Sitret Roundtable here in a very sunny London town in the next hour. Nick tells Dave it's OK to keep the UK's nuclear deterrent, but also he wants to know what we're pointing it at. Obama tells Kazai, well, it's OK to go talk to the Taliban. Well, which Taliban? And to make sure everyone's listening, US drones continue to kill Taliban who may not get the message. In Iraq, the bombers kill about 100 who are minding their own business anyway, and as NATO polishes its enlargement plan, the Russians are asking, what about us? In the Middle East, they talk proximity, and that's as close as it gets. And, and... In the Foreign Office, they say what and who they don't like. But we're wondering just who do we like? Anyone out there? And who is Peter Ricketts? Here in the sit uh, uh, studio today, the head of the Middle East programme at the London Think Tank, Chatham House, Dr Claire Spencer from that other think tank, the RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, the director of the Military Science Programme, the former naval person, Michael Codner, also, the director of the Centre for International Security and War Studies at the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove. He does like that title. <laughs> and Martin McCauley, the global affairs analyst from the university, from University College London. Now, anyone who doubted that Afghanistan is, with the economist Europit uh, joint top of the Cameron Institute's uh, must-fix system, then all they had to do was to see which was the first meeting in the Cabinet room yesterday. 6.30, they met the new National Security Council... It's quite a list, uh, Martin McCauley, the people at that uh, council meeting, isn't it? Starts with the Prime Minister, obviously. Yep, with the Prime Minister and obviously with the Foreign Secretary, uh, Secretary for Defence. Uh, uh, What's the Chancellor of the Exchequer doing there? Somebody's got to pay for he, it. He's, he's the one who hands out the money. And he's the one who says we can't afford that all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael Codner, also there, um, the Director General of the Security Service, the Chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee, um, CDS, the Chief Defence Staff, we'd imagined him, but also a new guy there, the new National Security Advisor, Sir Peter Ricketts. Tell me about him. Well, I don't have his whole CV in front of me, but um, he, he comes He's Foreign from, Office, isn't he? His Foreign Office comes from being um, a permanent undersecretary, and before that has had a Foreign Office record. Hang on, permanent undersecretary means he owns the Foreign Office, or did. Ex- he was the top exactly. man. Exactly, the top civil servant, yes. Yeah. He's, he's um, the um, Sir Humphrey Eric Foreign Office. Yes. Oh, right. Right. And uh, and a bit before that, his record was very much in the uh, in the Foreign Office security program. And the big issue over who would be the national security advisor in the American model, of course, you've got a whole range of people coming in from outside, from academia, everywhere. In Britain, you just don't have that that model adoption, and it looked as though it was going to be uh, a civil servant would be taking the job, which is a bit of a cop out in a way. Yeah. Um... Claire, uh, Claire Spencer, I mean, he's a good man, isn't he? I mean, he's got a good track record. Yeah, uh, he's a trusted pair of hands, and I, I think, as Mike is saying, you've got to have somebody who's got the Foreign Office experience and the uh, and some kind of security experience. I believe he was ambassador to NATO, so he knows those circles well, and because of his security links within the Foreign Office, I think they wanted to try and avoid a trade-off or fights between mod circles and uh, foreign office Which is circles. what exactly what happens in Washington when you've got 15 exactly. in, uh, intelligence agencies all waiting to be believed or not believed. Yes, this man is seen as having an even hand on both sides. Yeah. Martin? Well, there were rumours that Paddy Ashdown with his uh, marine background and uh, Bosnia, Afghanistan and all that, that he'd be a prime candidate for this committee. 
But his name doesn't regal. appear. It's too doesn't regal. Appear. No, come on, seriously. I mean, <laughs> does anybody believe king that... or queen in this cabinet? Oh. Yes, Paddy King. Uh, what, what, what do you, are you serious about uh, uh, this that Paddy Ashdown was considered for? Him? Well, I've yet to investigate, but there were some rumours. Um, you know how the press sort of uh, steamed over, you know, the last minute agreement that he was actually against this coalition, whereas in other circles he was seen to have blessed it. So I've yet to investigate who's got the right report here, but I think he was somewhat. Well, without exercised. being rotten. Without being rotten, uh, I mean, Paddy would be the first to say how old he is and probably would say, well, I am not quite yesterday's man, but uh, this is now a new team and a new idea. He and kept his options open in his public statements. I mean, he was saying one thing and then saying, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what I'll say at the meeting this afternoon. I thought he was being quite skillful in that regard. OK, listen, this Afghanistan thing right at the top of the foreign policy agenda and has to be at the top of the foreign policy agenda because it not only involves... Uh, as we see the chances there, how much money we've got. It involves, Michael uh, Codner, involves the future defence thinking on what we might buy in the future and what we don't need now. And in fact, almost how we change, change the sort of, if you like, the, the physique of our armed forces, the structure of our armed forces. Absolutely, because um, clearly the um, short-term requirement is uh, to have a military that can deal with Afghanistan, can be properly resourced, it also has the scale to to um, deliver our contribution. But in the longer term, uh, we have a nation who would be unlikely to rush to support a similar sort of operation involving regime change in Afghanistan and Iraq and the consequences. And therefore, um, perhaps a different option, which would be um, less long-term commitment uh, to um, ground occupation or um, stabilization. And uh, the, that other option is a possibility what one might call the maritime option, uh, where force is used um, in a somewhat different way, perhaps more how the Strategic Defence Review of 1998 originally envisaged the future. And hmm. people say, well, that was out of date because it didn't happen. But of course it didn't happen because government made decisions to do things which didn't necessarily follow from what we were equipped to do and nor what was actually best in the British interest. Well, most things don't happen as you think, but you've got a plan for them. Exactly. I mean, I gather this, is the, the, this, this new SDR is going to be an SSDR. It's going to be a strategic security and defence review, which perhaps might show a rather different emphasis, a rather broader emphasis. But whether it'll change things very much, I'm, I'm not sure. The basic, the basic problem is, as Mike says, do we, do we configure our forces primarily for the kind of war we're just fighting, which in my, Afghanistan, in my opinion, Afghanistan is a result of a tremendous strategic error or a series of strategic errors, which I don't think is the best way forward, or do we hedge against... The possibility of some rather different kind of conflict in the future. Clearly, you've got to do both and find some kind of acceptable balance between the two. OK. Anybody ought to read up on St Peter Ricketts. I wonder what if he would have advised about going to Afghanistan or not. But Afghanistan we are. And this week, Afghanistan means the meeting between Afghanistan's President Mohammed Karzai, who's been talking to America's President Barack Obama. A couple of weeks ago, it was all edgy. Karzai was corrupt, Obama didn't understand. That's what the two sides were saying about each other. But this week's meetings are looking good, or are they? Here's Jamie Gordon. There must be something in the air other than volcanic ash. On one side of the Atlantic, the new British coalition government are falling over themselves to create the image of harmony. And on the other side, a new approach to relations between Afghanistan and the US seem to be emerging. Just ahead of the talk, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton told President Karzai that the US was committed to Afghanistan long after American troops leave. This partnership 
is a long-term commitment by the American people to the Afghan people. Our nations will work together and with the international community to build a stable and prosperous Afghanistan. It wasn't long ago that President Barack Obama's administration was accusing Karzai of tolerating corruption and drug trafficking. But now Obama has said that perceived tensions were simply overstated. I am very comfortable with uh, the strong efforts that President Karzai have, has made thus far. Uh, and I think that we both agree that we're going to have to make more efforts in the future. And there are going to be uh, setbacks. There are going to be times where our governments disagree on a particular tactic. But what I'm very confident about is, is that we share a broad strategy, one that uh, I hope uh, we can memorialize in, uh, in a declaration by the end of this year. President Karzai in the past has accused the U.S. of undermining him and at one point joked about joining the Taliban. But addressing the American people, he admitted that his country had its problems but was determined to improve the situation. We have uh, shortcomings in Afghanistan still. Afghanistan is still a very, very poor country. Uh, the work that we have done promises uh, a better future for all of us and Afghanistan will assure you, Mr. President, that it will take the right steps in bringing a better government in Afghanistan for the benefit of the Afghan people and in partnership with the United States of America. President Obama has now said he supports Kabul in opening the door to the Taliban who agreed to disarm. The U.S. has clearly decided that treating President Karzai in a more respectful manner may produce dividends where public lecturing did not. Jamie Gordon reporting for Citra. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Um, um, Mike Codner, the, the interesting part about this is that, uh, of course, the Americans are the senior partner. Um, but the United Kingdom government is just as interested in how um, uh, President Karzai behaves as the Americans are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but um, we see Obama and um, Karzai's... Um, D debate very much uh, one uh, from time to time uh, Obama has to um, as it were put Karzai in his place over what needs to be done but at the end of the day unless there's something very substantial going to be done about the Afghan government he's got to work with him so we're going to have this oscillation it won't be the last time Eric Karzai is the only game in town really as far as the western forces are concerned for, for better or worse and uh, the, the, the only thing I think that Obama could can do if we're going to come out of this without uh, in any way we can declare victory is to make sure that Karzai has got some authority around the country. How far the current strategy will achieve that is another matter. But the, the, the problem is that the Taliban are now penetrating the north, the north of Afghanistan, which previously they were excluded from yep. because of the Tajiks and the Uzbeks and the Turkmen, and now they're making inroads into that area. And there's also the Uzbeks who come from Central Asia who have been pushed out of southern Pakistan and now going into northern Pakistan and moving into that region. So therefore the strategic situation for Karzai is getting more serious. OK, now on the line from Washington, the senior fellow of post-conflict reconstruction project at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, Robert Lamb. Robert Lamb, um, Mr Obama emphasised it was absolutely critical, I'm quoting here, it was absolutely critical that we succeed in this mission. Uh, and we have to find that mission being a finding a better way to deal with Mr Karzai, I imagine. Uh, yes, it would be. Um, and uh, it was clear, I think, this week that the Obama administration has recognised that uh, publicly criticising Karzai 
um, just wasn't working. So I think that the uh, political theatre... The lecture's finished, is it? Say that again? The public lecture is finished. I, I would say so. Um, the, the problem was that if, if Karzai is going to be seen as doing Obama's bidding, um, according to the Afghan public at home, that, that he's going to seem like a, a puppet of foreign occupiers. And, and that doesn't really uh, support his position domestically. And, and I think to keep support at home, he needed to be seen as an independent uh, of the United States. So I think that's what the political, theater, uh, the political theater here in Washington was designed to show the Afghan people. The United States unambiguously supports Karzai. Right. Tell me, how does this play in America, to the American public in particular, who've got a huge stake in what's going on in Afghanistan? Well, I think there was some, fr- um, some frustration uh, back a few months ago when, when, with Karzai's various outbursts and his his accusations, um, sort of a frustration that, that maybe he doesn't appreciate what, what uh, the effort that we've put into to stabilizing his country and how much, um, how much capital we've placed in him personally. But I think there's also uh, an equal, or I should say, a growing recognition, um, certainly within the Washington policy community, that we, we can't simply uh, let him be seen as as a puppet of the United States. He needs to be an independent voice. He needs to be supported. He needs to be seen at home as, as taking the lead for his, uh, his country's own counterinsurgency and its own development. This is a big leadership uh, question for Mr. Karzai, obviously, but also for President Obama. What do you want or what do you believe uh, Mr. Obama ought to be doing next, if anything at all? Well, our strategy in Afghanistan for stabilizing the country depends very much on fostering stable governance structures at all levels of Afghan society. And uh, President Karzai wants the United States to recognize Afghanistan as a major non-NATO ally, which is a designation that Australia and Pakistan and South Korea enjoy. And I think that if Obama were to make the major ally designation contingent on um, Karzai's making uh, some degree of progress, real progress, against the rampant corruption in his country, that that, that might be a promising way forward. But he would have to do that behind closed doors. He, he shouldn't be out in the public telling Karzai what he needs to do. He should be publicly praising Karzai and quietly um, uh, setting up these uh, milestones for progress. You're in the business of thinking about reconstruction post-conflict reconstruction. Um, How do you reconstruct something which, uh, when the war is quite clearly not only not ended, but if you take Iraq as an example, even when officially it's ended, uh, it still doesn't work as a state that is into the business of being reconstructed? Yes, the, the term post-conflict reconstruction is not the most, uh, the most accurate in, in these situations, is it? The, um, I, I think what we're trying to do is, is get at least to a position of, of post-violence. These are very divided societies, very underdeveloped societies, and it's going to be, there's always going to be conflict, but, but if we can reduce the violence and create stability to the degree possible, that's, that's a more promising approach. But I think the key is fostering stable local governance structures, focusing on the local level where, where you really uh, can make progress in, in critical areas, um, starting at the top and, and trying to, cr- to build essentially Belgium, where Afghanistan in, is, isn't going to work. You have to start with what's working at the local level and build up from there. Robert Lamb, thank you very much indeed. Um, Eric Grove. Just continuing from there, I mean, it, 
It's very true. You have to start locally, and the people have to feel that the American forces or the other NATO forces are there to protect them. That was the key to the success of the surge in Iraq, that instead of rampaging around, killing everybody, the, the US army actually went out and made the people think that they were their protectors. And that worked, and violence declined massively after an initial surge of casualties. And I wonder how far, in fact, the surge in Afghanistan has done that, because that's a key, a key factor, uh, that you've got to make the locals think that the occupying forces, who they're prejudiced against anyway, are actually there to protect them. And, and also the other factor, that are the occupying forces going to stay long enough so that if they withdraw, they're not going to get shot by the returning Taliban. Claire Spencer, can we make comparisons with Iraq? No, Afghanistan is much bigger and where this uh, parallel shadow surge is going on is only in a small part of Afghanistan. It's not really, you know, it was in the heartland, it was centred on Baghdad and then reached out to the Ambar provinces where the Sunni uh, tribal leaders actually pulled it very much you know, into shape. Their contribution actually made the critical difference. They came over, if you like, to the idea that they were on side. But so you it requires... haven't got this tribal consensus in Afghanistan. Well, there are two things which have struck me this week. One is the report from the renowned international crisis group suggesting that the Afghan army is nowhere near Mm. in the kind of shape it's riven with corruption and factionalism and that Karzai's approach of talking to tribal leaders, talking to, as people say, the Taliban, which Taliban, but it's basically local local warlords of the Taliban ilk, um, has very little credibility given the corruption with which his administration is tainted. So that's the crisis group's uh, approach. And the other, the other thing which struck me, I saw this in The Economist and went and checked on the UN website. They are advertising for 1,002 jobs. Jobs. And I've got a little list here I printed out. Well, here we go. I'll just read. This is a random page. Contract assistant engineer, Afghanistan, Kabul. Executive assistant, Afghanistan, Kabul. Senior rural finance specialist, procurement advisor, information counsellor, franchise manager, senior legal advisor, office assistant, administrative clerk, civil engineer, translator, driver, etc. And now, these from indigenous Afghan... Well, I don't know. One assumes some of them are going to be local recruits. I haven't actually applied for any, you'll understand, so I've not actually looked at the, sure the, look the details. This, yeah. But it is slightly worrying. It is slightly worrying that, you know, since so much of this uh, policy hinges on the civilian effort and humanitarian and reconstruction and development, that the UN itself is advertising for 1,002 posts all in, of, all, of all categories, and that clearly there aren't enough people uh, volunteering locally or otherwise to do this. I suppose in brackets you put danger money, security money, because any European or any American who applied for a job, especially rural, going to the rural finance officer... That's right. That would be... That appeals to you, does it? Yeah. No, that, that's, <laughs> exactly, but that's exactly the problem, isn't it? That's exactly the problem, because attempts on reconstruction always fail because there isn't enough security, therefore the whole thing becomes kinetic and military, yes, exactly. and the whole thing becomes a war. OK, let's talk about a war, kinetic or <laughs> otherwise, uh, because down at the MOD uh, this lunchtime, the Chief uh, Defence Staff uh, spokesman, Major General Gordon Messenger, and Major General Nick Carter, who is the Commander Regional Centre South, they've been briefing operations in Afghanistan, in particular Central Helmand. BFBS news reporter Will Inglis was there. Will, saying what? 
Well, they were talking initially about Marja. Obviously, this was one of the towns that was a focus for of Mosterak. Um, they're admitting that governance problems and the ongoing intimidation of the locals are getting in the way of reconstruction in Marja. For instance, um, General Carter said that a thousand water pumps have been made available, obviously, as part of the reconstruction, part of the hearts and minds drive. But so far, only 86 have actually been taken up by the locals. Now, he says that that is a sign of the kind of intimidation that people there are facing. He's saying it's still a pretty dangerous place, 30 or so direct fire attacks a week. And he drew the comparison with Nad Ali, where obviously the British forces have been involved for some 18 months now, um, saying that that is a lot safer than, than Marjorie's. Right. But there was no suggestion that this, this combination of reconstruction, the water pumps being taken as an example, and the military are running parallel because the military all seems to be one that can easily, more easily say, look, we're ahead of this uh, because once they are ahead, to bring in a reconstruction uh, system behind them is takes months, maybe even years. Well, that's right. And, and obviously the way that they're trying to do things in Helmand is that the military at the sharp end, if you like, also do parts of this reconstruction, dig wells and all that sort of stuff, rather soon after taking, if you like, in, in the old parlance perhaps, taking control of a piece of territory. So, as I say, digging wells, providing water pumps, that sort of business, even in extreme cases, actually building infrastructure. Reservoir. Mm, Do you remember, right, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, what was it, last year, early last year, the wonderful sort of uh, film um, pictures of the military moving part of a reservoir in, in, into position, the most amazing logistical problem. Um, but well, it really was simply, um, that's all they managed to do. Well, that's right. Yes, absolutely. I, I guess you're talking about the turbine at the Kajaki Dam, you know, due to design to sort out um, uh, southern Afghanistan's electricity problems in that there just isn't enough. And so they've managed to, at vast risk, transport this turbine weighing many hundreds of tons into position. But the trouble is they can't get the concrete up the road to actually install it. The road just isn't anywhere near safe enough to get the, the thousands of tons of concrete that will be needed to install it. So it's basically sitting there still boxed up, having been transported through hostile territory um, without actually being used. Well, final quick point. Uh, I'm not a, being at all cynical, but why the briefing today? Largely, Christopher, this was about Helm, uh, about Kandahar province and about the, the big issues facing ISAF in Kandahar province. Now, we've got the first real sign today that the British forces aren't going to be involved in the, the kinetic battle, if you like, for control of certain districts of Kandahar province, which we all expect really to be happening in the next few months. We were told that the territory would be stolen during this encounter, as they suggest it was successfully during Obmostrak, rather than being taken in purely kinetic-type fashion. But they said that this would be an Afghan-led operation if Kandahar's sizable um, governance problems, largely involving the half-brother of Afghanistan's president, can be overcome. The ISAF element would then be led by the U.S. forces, clearly. There's another brigade combat team on its way in there at the moment, and supported by the Canadians, still commanded, of course, by um, British Major General Nick Carter, as, uh, as you say, uh, Regional Commander South. Will English, thank you very much indeed. Well, <laughs> there we have it, don't we? Um, what we're all thinking about, should be thinking about now, is the next stage, and let's go for Kandahar. But the question becomes, um, doesn't it, Claire, who goes for Kandahar? When you've got it, assuming you do get it, then what happens? Because if you leave it alone, the other fellow just comes home again. 
Well, it's this, it's this eternal problem of vacuums and voids. I remember one of the first documentaries I saw of, um, you know, they did these late night programmes about two, three years ago when the British forces soon after had gone in where they showed this absolute, you know, arm-to-arm combat to take over a school. And then the poor, I think it was a major who'd secured this place, was then told he would have to withdraw completely because there weren't, there, there wasn't security for the logistic lines and the ANA could not take over from this post. And you suddenly think, why do all this if you really haven't got the infrastructure and the support and the backup in place to actually hold the positions that you fought for? Now, I think in some areas that's that's happening because of this this surge. But I fear, Kandahar, we, we keep coming back to this area. And I, I just don't see it being secured in, in a sustainable kind of way. I Others w- may have other views. No, 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 no I, I don't really. I, mean, I, I get worried when I hear people saying, oh, well, we'll infiltrate and it'll all be easy. It reminds me a little bit of John Reed saying that n- not a shot will be fired. And that was the hope. I yeah. think that was taken out of context, wasn't no. it? No. Yeah, very unfair. Well, no, no, it isn't entirely unfair because I think there was a tremendous misjudgment at a number of levels, not just at the so Secretary of State's level. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't if? it be nice <laughs> if? But I think the impression was was that this would just be a security thing, that in fact it'd be easy to move in, you'd be able to control the triangle around the road in northern Helmand, and so on, and it all escalated into a huge great battle with these outposts being besieged and so on, with the paras being paras and going on the offensive a lot, Uh, and, 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 uh, 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 and it became a major conflict. BEF... 1939? Well, the BEF had a simple problem compared to this. At least it was just the Germans on the other side of the line who did things that they weren't expected. Yes. This, is, this is a very difficult Martin, counterinsurgency. Is, is, uh, is, uh, let me say something which might be treasonous. Um, the people uh, who are on the other side is the Pakistani army. And sooner or later, uh, the Taliban, the Taliban appears to be creeping up uh, which is the Afghan Taliban, uh, which is not opposed to the Pakistani army, uh, and the Pakistani uh, Taliban is opposed to it, uh, and it doesn't like uh, this frontier region. If the Pakistani army then proceeds west and comes into eastern Afghanistan, uh, that may be uh, one way, probably the only way, of securing that region, because the Taliban is penetrating the north and getting very close to the Tajik. I'd love to hear what the Indians would have to say if, they, if the Pakistanis started to go in there. Yeah, yeah, because it's a regional. I mean, this is the whole point. Hmm. We can't, we can't ignore this. We can't simply say, you know, it was the Americans, us, and a few hmm. other guys like the, you know, the Canadians, the Dutch, hmm. or, or Danes, or whatever. Hmm. This is a regional problem, Martin. Uh, they have to rethink. And it will remain a regional yes, problem. I, I when know we that the, the Indians are obsessed that they're going to be uh, encircled. Uh, the Pakistanis are, are being are incest. Uh, absolutely, because they think they're being encircled. The Indians are getting too much influence in Kabul. They think that Karzai is is pro-Indian and so on. Uh, and the way to do that is is to think about what are the consequences of the Taliban penetrating Tajikistan and transi- uh, penetrating Central Asia. Okay, we're going to talk about something much simpler in a minute, Trident. Um, but mm. we're just coming up to half past the hour. You're listening to SITREP on BFBS Radio 2 with me, Christopher Lee. Still with me in the SITREP Roundtable uh, from University College London, Martin Macaulay, Professor Eric Grove at the University of Salford from Chatham House, Dr Claire Spencer, and from that other think tank, the IUSI, Michael Cotner. And if you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme, the whole programme, simply by going into bfbs.com forward slash sitrep and clicking on listen again. Now, one thing that the MOD doesn't have to brief about at the moment anyway, is the fusion of Trident, the SSBN system that carries the UK's nuclear weapons deterrent system. 
The Liberal Democrats, who campaigned against Trident renewal, or in the form imagined, now say they'll not oppose a nuclear deterrent, up to a point, Lord Cockper. Um, was this so much a Lib Dem uh, concession? Uh, well, the Lib- I gather that the Lib Dems policy was a compromise between those who wanted to maintain a nuclear deterrent and actually tacitly accepted that Trident was probably the best way forward. Because... And- of the same for the, you can hide it. for the same reasons that in fact the government argued quite cogently in its white paper a year or two ago and also those shall we say green liberal democrats who didn't want anything nuclear at all yeah, yeah. and so the compromise was that you'd say that although we w- want to keep a nuclear deterrent we will look for a cheaper version mm. so what presumably is going to happen now is that a lot of the work that was done a few years ago is probably going to be trotted out again to try to convince the coalition partner that in fact, perhaps Trident as planned is probably. But we're the already way designing forward. it, aren't we? Yes, well, we should be. There well, is. Well, hmm. Hang on. Michael I gather the Cotton. missile section is being designed as we speak. Michael Connor. Yes, we're in what they call the assessment phase, which is where um, a, a proportion of the money is spent, a relatively small proportion, on deciding where the project is going. The big money is not committed till rather later, around about 2014. So we're talking about at the end of this parliament and so even though decisions are meant to have been taken by the previous government there is in a 2006 big, yes there is a big commitment to make in 2014 so there's uh, every reason to be able to um, continue discussion over the issues in the meantime and will we discuss it i mean for example will it be or should it be in the Strategic Defence Review. At the moment, it's not going to be in the Strategic Defence well, Review, ab- is it? absolutely, particularly as the uh, two parties of the coalition have agreed that they will continue, they will review expenditure over Trident. But and, not the principle? Well, not the principle, no, but expenditure over Trident. And anyhow, events, events could mm. well um, shape what decisions are taken in 2014. Listen, one of the Nick uh, uh, Clegg's questions apparently in one of the briefings he had, uh, was one that you've given, Michael, the answer to on this programme before. What do we point Trident at at the moment? Well, we uh, we declare that we don't point at anything. It is um, the capability is not directed at any particular nation as it was in the Cold War. Um, the, the question is, uh, how do we then calculate what we call the minimum deterrent, which is what we say we have, and that's certainly what the Labour Party said it has, street defence review, if you haven't got what they used to call the Moscow criteria, and that is particular countries, particular capitals, and how much destruction you feel you need to do to make absolutely sure that you've got the revenge that you can use if anyone uses a nuclear weapon on you. Yeah. We and have if you the haven't mus- got that model, then or, well, you may have it. We have tacitly. You have it tacitly, but one needs to bear in mind that you have to have scenarios if you're going to build capabilities. So you can't walk away from these are the possible enemies completely. Exactly, and I'm sure that kind of planning goes on. Tell me something. The, uh, now we've got this new uh, form of government, and in theory we've got it for four or five years. Um, does this new form of government actually make the defence debate, anybody, uh, different? It, it does, because the Brown government, because it was, it was left-wing, 
didn't like was it. What? <laughs> what? Sorry. I missed no, that. that. Come on, come on, come on. Mr. Brown is, is on the Eurocratic, left. But not Mr. Brown had a right-wing head and Absolutely. a left-wing heart, and that's why he found making any kind of decision difficult. He had a huge, great feedback problem. No, he, I see him. I see him. And he has... He's a former Marxist as well. And oh, he, he not in his relations with the City of London. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on, hang on. Let, on. let Martin have a all word. All this is like scrambled egg in his head. Uh, he had a natural bias, as all socialists do, against military force, the instruments of coercion, they're called, the military and the police. It's instinctive in the left. Uh, and uh, he was forced then to spend more on defence, against really his will. But this government is the other way around, because conservatives and those centre uh, to the right uh, regard the military as the protectors and so on, and protect democracy and the liberal market economy and so on and so forth. So therefore, philosophically, their attitude is different. So they're more likely to spend more money on defence. And it's, it's uh, very significant that the first cabinet meeting or the first meeting was about defence. They've taken it very, very seriously. And uh, the military will, in fact, have a very high profile. Mm. And almost certainly they will get the money. And then the civilian, the civil budget will be cut. OK, the cynic uh, wouldn't say, for example, that the National Security Council, what it was now called, yeah. was a very good photo opportunity, would they? Claire, <laughs> um, um, do you buy this? Not at all. No, I've always held that it's the Labour Party who are in awe of the city and, and military might. I mean, if you've read the book Blair's Wars, you know, it was the Labour government who, who sent uh, British forces off to, to more conflicts than anybody else put together. I would see this new coalition as focusing on precisely what they've introduced and that Eric pointed out was this element of security in the strategic defence review. We've had these discussions before in the, in the 1997 one. One of the criticisms of it uh, was it was f too heavily focused on defence, even though it was supposed to be foreign policy-led, and there wasn't enough on security. And I, I very much welcome the idea that you look at the whole range of security threats, including policing, including intelligence, including how do you get the right mix of ensuring national interests, whether that be... Uh, homeland security conceived in the American way, whether it be our interests overseas, and you deploy resources accordingly. And I think there is a possibility, particularly with the Lib Dems on board, of taking a much fresher and newer look at all this. Uh, Michael, uh, Michael Codner, uh, you have been looking at the RUSI, this whole idea of matching manifestos. And manifestos, I'm not sure how much they mean at the moment because of the coalition, matching manifestos to military capabilities and the most difficult thing to future obligations. Do you come to any conclusions or do we really have to wait to an SDR? The conclusion that I drew, drew in the report that, um, that um, has come out today uh, was that, uh, across the three parties indeed, but specifically the two forming the coalition, um, there is a huge amount of commonality and the differences, uh, looking at them specifically from a defence, the differences between whether it's a partnership with America or a partnership with Europe are not particularly uh, meaningful or significant. There are some big issues. Um, and so there is a pretty firm basis to go ahead with um, a very thorough review, security and defence. But at the end of the day, a security and defence review has got to be a thorough defence review. You've got to come out with hard decisions about which capabilities you need. So the review is not going to be um, any different in that sense. All this is, is there's going to have to be a lot of other reviewing all the way around it. But the most important issue of all is the relationship between our military capability and our perceptions of ourselves 
as a major global power, up there for how long? number four, and whether the public, even after an election, are going to accept that they're paying considerably above the normal odds, the European odds of 1.56% for defence, in order to fund that gap. When ninth economic power, fourth defence power. There's a lot of money between the two. But, Michael, I mean, people have, uh, and they did over the uh, prospects of going to war in Iraq, people have taken to the streets with placards over specific things such as, we don't want to go to war. But I can't remember people, apart from the groups like CND, or interest groups, ever expressing a huge interest in the defence budget at all. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the British approach is, is one of disinterested affection for its military. And, but what hasn't happened in the past, it hasn't been made starkly clear that it's money going to defence and it's being cut elsewhere. Um, and and uh, quite clearly that wasn't a, a very comfortable subject for any political party uh, in the review, but in, in the election. But it's one that is going to become very apparent once we start moving into the business of difficult budget choices now and then comprehensive spending review. And ultimately, when the defence review completes and they say, this is what we're going to spend and on what, and the public are saying, we've not got money for this and that... Although the public's where ships are built are going to be interested that yeah, they're keeping... Claire, can I, minute, Claire, can yeah, I just, just, just take this in, in a practical <clears throat> level as far as I can see it? A, the Strategic Defence Review gets underway almost immediately. <clears throat> the public, the taxpayer, will not understand, with very few exceptions, a whit of what is going on. They will not understand the terminology, they will mm. not understand the issues in, entirely. And if you look at the way the media runs and has to run, it will not be a daily diet of this is what's going on strategic defence review. So then we get to Michael's point, mm. which says at the end of it, there'll be, people will be saying, right, this is what we've got to spend, and we've got to spend on, on hospitals, etc. It's not going to be a public thing, is it? It's going to be m m uh, Michael Gove, the education secretary, saying... I need more classrooms, and you can't have so many tanks. Simple as that. Well, they've already pitched in saying nothing's going to happen to the National Health Service budget because that's been protected, and that was something that the, the, the Conservatives campaigned on, and obviously the Lib Dems are on board. That's a very expensive chunk of the budget. Education is going to be a very tricky area because everyone is arguing you have to keep educating people in order to get out of the recession. Now, the news this morning is that Spain, who's next in line after Greece, is cutting, uh, because of deficit pressures, 5% of the civil service, public jobs will go, um, salaries. But, uh, you know, I don't know what that represents in, in the British context, but I think you're absolutely right. People are going to be more focused on where the cuts are going in, in public services, in their localities, etc. And it could be somebody starts injecting ideas about, ah, well, you know, that you see this bottomless pit of a defence budget and this so-called security review going on. That's where the money is going and we, we have can to stop understand, it. So there could be some campaign. We can understand uh, MRSA, uh, dirty wards, yes. uh, 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 um, fibrillators, etc., far easier than we can understand SSBNs. Yes, Simple well, I mean, but somebody might choose to try and explain this to the public and say, look, actually... They'll only get really, one shot. We don't really but need... If you, but if you live in my part of the world, in the northwest, you are worried what happens at Wharton, you're worried what happens at Barrow, and if you live in Scotland, you're worried about what happens at Govan, and that is actually quite an important factor that must not be dismissed, so a, Yeah, Martin McCorning, then we I, must move I on. I think the strategy uh, uh, will be in two parts. Uh, the, the present government will do its best to get out of Afghanistan. 
uh, and all the efforts will be put into solving it in one way or the other, but getting out. And you'll have to expe- uh, uh, spend as much as necessary to get out. Once you've got out, you have a different playing uh, field, and you will then say, right, we don't intervene anywhere else like that. We've learnt our lessons. And then there was the, the Lib Dems will say, we can now cut our defence budget uh, because uh, our reach will not be so far, and we must not be uh, uh, as ambitious as uh, in the past. We must not get involved. Look at Iraq. We will never allow that again. Okay. Uh, we will never get into Afghanistan again, and we can save less money. Michael, you'll have to be quick, because I want to move on to Pakistan. I was just going to say, there is the option for the future. Move out of Afghanistan, and then you have um, a military that has continues with its reach. It does the strategic raiding stuff with a substantial navy, with um, with uh, specialist infantry forces like Royal Marines and Paris, that sort of thing. But it doesn't get engaged because it's not got the ground forces to do it. I mean, this is the alternative option. But you don't save money there if you're trying to support the global status of the nation. Um, you have to go for a different option if you're going to save money, and there is a very good one, the, Nor- the Northern Lights option. The, yeah, the, for- the foreign service are going to have to have a hard time convincing the uh, people that we're going Nick to have Nick Clegg a- says he likes aircraft carriers. He's on record as having said so in the campaign. <laughs> yes. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. eight years old. Yeah, no, but no, in the, in come on, come campaign. on, Eric. You know, it's all, they're all like timeshare reps. They say <laughs> an enormous amount of things during the... As I said, he, he said it, though, close <laughs> to where they're being built. That was, that's the important... Does he want to get okay. right, the listen, uh, let's, let's move on My to point. something even more uh, disheartening in some ways, people who are worried how we, how we fix what's going on. Um... There have been about 70, 70, 70 drone attacks in the Waziristan, that's Pakistan-Afghanistan border this year alone, 70. More than 200 killed. And this week, according to the Pakistani Information Service, at least 10 militants have been killed by unmanned US drones in the Pakistan tribal region of North Waziristan. Uh, Effective? Uh, clear or not effective? Well, I don't understand the logic. I mean, I've spoken about this before. I just think it's utterly counterproductive because if only uh, 10 militants have been killed, that means there's 190 dead others. Now, if we're trying to avoid killing civilians uh, in Afghanistan because we've twigged that hearts and minds is, is the name of the game, why is this not occurring in Pakistan? Why is it not being effective? Why have we had to increase the number of do- drone attacks? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that these are being authorised by the very Obama, who was supposed to be an improvement on Bush. But it, it, whatever the morality and ethics of it, it seems to me strategically and tactically counterproductive. It, it seems to me a, a factory for creating, uh, almost by force, more Taliban supporters, because when you're a young man whose family has just been flattened by one of these things, you have no choice but to seek revenge in some form or another. That is the tribal law in these places. So I really don't understand what the logic is for the sake of killing 10 militants. What do you do with the, the, uh, the safe havens of the Taliban, Afghan Taliban, in Waziristan, uh, in Western Pakistan, if the Pakistani army will not proceed against them? The Pakistani army do not regard the Afghan Taliban as an enemy. They see it, in fact, as an ally because it keeps down the Indians and uh, perhaps it keeps down the Americans and so on. Uh, so you have this predicament. Do you just allow them a safe haven where they can do anything well, you like? I'm not positing an either or. I'm saying killing civilians has been 
taken off the agenda in Afghanistan because it is seen as strategically counterproductive. Why is it productive in Pakistan? There must be alternatives. What makes it even more interesting, of course, is that these drones, a lot of them anyway, fly from a base within Pakistan. I mean, we know there's a base there from which these... They condemn it. It's part of it, in I know. And they condone but it that demonstrates the whole problem because they, they have to condemn it politically because they know that Pakistani opinion is against this. But on the other hand, because of their relationship with the United States and also because they would like to see some of these people done down too, they, they condone these strikes. It's the most extraordinary, it's an extraordinary situation. Plus Tom, it's created more than two million refugees, which is another problem. Tommy, uh, Claire, I was uh, we were talking to Robert Lamb earlier in the programme and saying, well, look, can you make a comparison with, what's, uh, with post-conflict reconstruction in Afghanistan with what went on in, in Iraq? And when I hear, for example, this week... 100 people killed mm. in bombings. I begin to think, then, how do you define that you're in post-conflict Iraq? Well, secretly, I've always had problems with these categories because mostly because I spent, when I was at uh, King's College Centre of Defence Studies in the 1990s, the whole of that decade was dominated oh, by the conflict in, uh, in, uh, in Algeria. And there was no post-conflict. You know, when things settled down from a high of 1,000 dead each month, suddenly we're saying, oh, well, things are calming down, so maybe we can go in for reconstruction. Actually, there, it was such an invisible war that nobody knew what they were reconstructing. I mean, it was just random bomb attacks. So I think these are very dangerous categories and they take a much longer time. You can say you've you've gone past, as we did after the surge in Iraq, the peak of violence. But this has continued, these very large-scale bombings. As you know, all the way through the autumn, there have been bombings in the centre of Baghdad, the centre of populated areas, that have killed upwards of 250 people a time. This is not a, a tranquil situation. For this to happen every month, every two months, regardless, you cannot say you're in a normalised situation where this will not happen. Right. Um, we've been looking at this, in, in, to some extent, uh, what's going on in Afghanistan and elsewhere in I think sometimes in a very sort of parochial way, in, in, in other words, from the United Kingdom's point of view. Um, let's look at it in a NATO point of view, because a lot of things that we do, and a lot of things we're going to have to do in the future, we do as part of a NATO operation. Um, we've also got to think about the preparations in the, uh, for the November NATO summit that will be looking to confirm a new NATO strategic concept, a sort of what's NATO for statement. Now, one of the biggest tasks, they say, is what to do about Russia. Now, coincidentally, Charles Kupchan, Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University in Washington, has started a debate this month that has a simple answer to the problem about Russia. Simple, make Russia a member of NATO. He's on the line now. Um, not so easy to do, um, but it, it, at the end of the Cold War, the United States sort of acted as if Russia no longer mattered. That wasn't very bright, was it? No, I, I think that the impulse to somehow lock in Central Europe and make sure that democracy and markets and sovereignty survived was the right impulse. But I think it, it, it came at the cost of the possibility of opening the Euro-Atlantic order to Russia. And I think as we've learned from the peace of, uh, of 1815, the Concert of Europe, the peace of after World War II, opening the post-war order to the defeated adversary is critical to long-term stability. And we haven't yet figured out how to do that with Russia. That's partly Russia's fault. 
They've been pushy in their near abroad. They've been backsliding on democracy. But I also think that the U.S. and its West European allies haven't been sufficiently for uh, for thinking, forward thinking. And that's why I think I've put out the, this issue. Let's let's think seriously about bringing Russia into NATO. I was um, I was thinking it's only what three four months ago when the uh, Moscow was publishing its own new military doctrine, if that's in fact what it is. And there was a sense that it was pointing to NATO and said NATO is still a potential enemy. The doctrine that you're referring to specifically said that NATO poses to Russia a primary external threat. And I think that we in the West have been too dismissive of Russian concerns, that NATO, perhaps the world's greatest military alliance, has been moving closer and closer to Russia. We know that we NATO members mean no harm. We're not about to invade Russia. But the view from Moscow is different. The view from Moscow is one of strategic encirclement. And I think it's time to begin to think how to get out of this box. Uh, And that's why the idea of opening NATO's doors to Russia, not today, not tomorrow, but as a strategic vision, makes sense uh, as part of a a broadening agenda. I was looking at your, I think it's your, your new book, How Enemies Become Friends. And there was, a, there was a sense of the inevitability, really, that enemies do become, not necessarily friends, but you, 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 you do make a truce with them, because after all, you can't make a truce with anybody else but your enemies. I, I would probably be cautious about the world inevitability, because there are many cases in history where states have tried to move down the path of rapprochement and failed. But I do think there are many cases where it works. And it only works if you try, if you reach out uh, your hand, if you say to the adversary, we are willing to put our disputes with you aside if you do the same with us, if you reciprocate. And I think we're starting to see that with Russia. Obama is pushing the reset button. We have a new start treaty, but it's still very early on. And now the question is, how do we move from the initial exchange of goodwill into something more deep? And more lasting. It's also true, I suppose, that the, uh, that, uh, the European members of uh, NATO might have a different view of Russia, if Russia were inside, than the United States would. Well, I think there's a division within Europe. And in Central Europe, the idea of Russia joining NATO, I think, would shen- shivers down the spine. They still see NATO primarily as a hedge against Russian aggression. I think in Germany which is very intent on reaching out to Russia and consolidating a good strategic and economic relationship, the idea would be more attractive. But these are issues that are very much in play and no doubt will get a lot of discussion at the upcoming NATO summit. Um, Professor, there's one, just one, uh, I suppose, sort of final point here. Um, Washington's view of having Russia inside NATO and Europe's view, although I suggest they're not entirely compatible, these are two very valid points of view which seem to me irreconcilable. Well, you know, let me make clear that this is, this is my view. I don't think you would get anyone in the Obama administration who would come out and say, let's let Russia join NATO. I think you might find some sympathetic voices, but it's certainly not U.S. policy. I don't think that you'd find a lot of opposition in in Western Europe. Certainly, as I said, in Central Europe, there'd be concern. But I think in many respects, 
Central Europeans have more interest in locking in a stable peace with Russia than anybody, because in the end of the day, Central Europe remains a dangerous neighborhood if the relationship between Western Europe and Russia is conflictual. Central Europe no longer has a security problem if that security competition goes away. So in many respects, if, if things move in the right direction, I think it could be that the Central Europeans ultimately are very enthusiastic about the idea of a new post-Cold War settlement in which Russia is a card-carrying member. Professor, thank you very much indeed. And Charles Kopchin's book, book um, How Enemies Become Friends, I think you can get it now. Uh, fascinating. Look at all these finger wagons. Come on, Martin. His last statement, uh, sen- well, uh, I'm in awe of his last statement, saying the Central Europeans <laughs> would really feel more safe uh, if Russia exactly. was a metal. Absolutely. Go to Riga. Yeah, for goodness sake, uh, go to Warsaw. Mind you, Sikorsky is a very good foreign minister. Uh, the Poles would veto it uh, and go to Stalin and uh, tell the Estonians that uh, you're better off with the Russian bear as your friends. They know all about the Russian bear and its claws as well. But anyway, let's look at the Russian military today. It's it's actually being reformed and they hope to have 150,000 contract officers and NCOs. And uh, it's failed completely, and now the the, the goal is 90,000, and they're not going to get 90,000, and they can't even get the conscripts. They're thinking of extending... They've never been able to get the conscripts. They're thinking now of extending it... Uh, they only wanted them to dig the potatoes, anyway. ...to 30, and university students, after year one, go into the military. Mm-hmm. And what the kids do now is... Uh, the collar papers have to be delivered, so therefore you move house and they're going to put it on uh, text on your mobile to, to uh, uh, get you to go to the recruiting centre. In other words, the Russian Just military like Tesco, is, is really in a mess. Yeah. Michael? I was going to say, what would the NATO be that had Russia inside it? I mean, once Russia's in, then it would, you well, could it argue... It, you dispose of NATO. I mean, it's the operation. Well, the Charles Kupchin's yeah. idea is that you bring Russia in, you strengthen uh, NATO. You don't have to have this what he calls it, a stupid idea of the EU setting up uh, oh. in, 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 in opposition to NATO. You but have what one are the lot. forces? Uh, on the assumption that it remains a military alliance, what are the forces for? Ah, well, and, and okay. The, the Americans. Listen, I'm not answering for this man, but I will tell you what he says. The forces, because I've read his book, the forces then become very good for the. Americans, because the Americans want actually uh, European NATO simply to add to their forces when they go off on some foreign expedition. It's the using NATO outside the NATO area for expeditionary stuff. And Afghanistan is the bridge too far in that respect. And NATO is looking at itself now for the original purpose, which is for collective defence. And that's what... um, falls to pieces if you bring Russia in. OK, we keep them out. Khrushchev was wrong. He <laughs> did apply in 1950, whatever it was. That's, quite, Eric, that's what um, OSC is for. Eric, Eric, Eric. Um, yes. What's going on in, in, in Korea? Um, oh, they're claiming they've done fusion. They've done cold fusion or something recently. It's quite extraordinary. Because yes. nobody can prove whether they have or they haven't. They I doubt it, it very much. But everybody <laughs> is very excited about that the North Koreans do actually have their nuclear capability. And there are very funny stories well, sculling around Well, there are very funny stories sculling around, actually, which, I, which, which I've been finding out about in the last few weeks. But they may have got some of this well, from the Western government. Th- there were some loose nukes, as they say, and they imported, and they imported a couple of bombs, one part of former American one, which didn't go off, and a 
former South African one, which did. <gasps> OK, let's uh, listen. I want to just just something else, uh, Martin. Uh, you have to w- wait now because we're running out of time. Um, I was thinking all this security thing uh, with, with, with the council last night and uh, mm. the Foreign Office seems to know, seems to be putting around who we like, who are our friends. I want to know um, who we don't like. Martin, any ideas who we don't Whom like? Whom we don't like? Well, the, the only country we potentially fear now is Iran. If they get a, if they get a, a weapon, if they get a nuclear device, uh, will Ahmadinejad and the Ayatollahs be rational in their decision-making? Uh, there's no enemy in, in Europe. Clear. Enemies outside. Uh, we don't like the Eurozone, and we're very glad we're not in it because we'd have to uh, but we pay do out like to going bail on out. To, to Greece. Yes, we do. But the <laughs> Euro is far too. The exchange rate is terrible. They've made things far too expensive for us. Anybody and, else? Uh, we'd who have do we to like? Bail who we Greece. don't like? You don't like the Russians. So you can't come into NATO. <laughs> Britain has no permanent friends, only permanent interests. OK, well, we're all friends now. We're all friends now. We've all stand in the Rose Garden. We hold hands. And I was thinking, looking at Mr Clegg and looking at Mr Cameron, I'm never sure which way around you're supposed to say this now. The ties, Tony. All the... All the um, all the show business things. I was thinking of all the... A bicycle made for two. Rowan and Martin oh, yes. laughing. Anything else? Well... What has a left wing and a right wing? A chicken. Oh dear! Come on, <laughs> or an eagle. You say tomato. <laughs> right. I say tomato. Right, Martin. Happen. Any thoughts on that? There have to be some, some new song by what was it, Mr. Small, uh, Swan, the GNU. Oh yes. He has to invent. No, I'm like sorry. Them. I I find it cool. amazing that British politicians are being so adult. I didn't think they oh, had it in them. Don't worry about adulthood. It never lasts. I tell you. I promise you. Um, two flew over the cuckoo nest. We'll leave it at that. Okay. That's it for this week. My thanks to Claire Spencer, Eric Grove, Martin McCauley, and Michael Cotner. Next week, guess what? Next week, we're going into space. So until then, until then, I'm Christopher Lee. Mary? Mary's in the space hut. Footwear with Christopher Lee.